everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, I'm Hub, and I hope you're doing well on this fine whenever the heck you're listening to this podcast. I'm doing pretty well. My wife was cooking the other night and unfortunately got a jalapeno burn from the juices of jalapenos on her hand. And so we were looking up on the internet potential ways to remedy that situation. And the first one was, why not try soaking the burn in some milk? So we we tried that. Didn't really seem to have any effect. Next one was, try soaking it in some yogurt. At this point, I start to get a little suspicious, so I look down the list. Next one on there is mayonnaise. And then I started thinking, this seems like this is maybe the work of bears that are like, oh, well, it's something spicy. I want something to cool it down. You had to go way down that list to get to anything that wasn't potentially just a dipping sauce for bears to eat you because you've got spicy juice on your fingers. So apparently bears are using the Internet. So I would like to welcome any new bear listeners, as you no doubt have other things to do. Uh, beehives full of honey to swipe with one paw, Um, trees to rub your back against. I understand that you're busy bears, and let's just get on with the show. So, without any further ado, let's ado this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Molly Hayes Hernandez. There's so many heroes in the universe, it's tough to know who to bless or curse. If you're lost when playing Kill, Mary Kiss, here's Hub to help with a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Molly. Defenders, number 13, May 1974. For sale, one planet, slightly used. Written by Len Wein, drotted by Sal Buscema, with inks by Klaus Janssen. Defenders roll call, Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, The Incredible Hulk, Namor, and Nighthawk. Previously in the Defenders... After the rigors of the Avengers Defenders War, the gang got mixed up in some time travel shenanigans with some unpleasant racial undertones, and overtones, and regular tones which the creative team seemed to think meant of a pinkish hue. The non-team decided to ditch the Black Knight back in the 12th century. Hooray! So that he could fight in the Crusades. Boo! He took back his magical sword from Val, but she got to keep his flying horse, so fair enough. Upon returning to the 1970s, Hulk, Namor, and the Silver Surfer quit the Defenders. Boo! Also, Hawkeye quit the Defenders. Hooray! Then Hulk got attacked by an evil space yeti slash former children's television host. Val tried to quit the team, but Steve wasn't paying attention, so it didn't really stick. Steve gave Val a magic sword he had lying around the office. Its name is Dragonfang, and it can cut through steamrollers. Keen. Literally. Steve, Val, and Dragonfang headed out to a small town of somewhat ambiguous location to rescue the Hulk. While they were out, a mysterious stranger wearing the totally inconspicuous outfit of a fedora and trench coat popped by the Sanctum Sanctorum seeking the aid of the defenders, but Wong told them the non-team in question was off fighting a space yeti, and they'd have to come back later. The strangers stormed off, muttering darkly to themselves that... There might not be a later. Philosophically sound, but unsettling nonetheless. Val, Hulk, and Doctor Strange defeated the Space Yeti, destroyed his spaceship, and decided that they were best friends forever. With each other, not with evil Space Yeti. Hulk decided to rejoin the Defenders after all. Hooray! Godzooks! What cataclysmic threat does the mysterious stranger require the Defenders' assistance with? How will Val, Hulk, and Steven Strange celebrate their newfound friendship? And now that the Hulk is back on the Defenders, which recently departed non-teammate will be next to rejoin the non-team? Stay tuned to find out! Okay, so... A decidedly unscrupulous cosmic real estate developer 
by Steve telling boring stories about the cool stuff in his den while Val and Hulk sit quietly, and Namor. I mean, I said it right in the Defenders roll call bit, remember? Hulk, Val, and Doctor Strange are chilling out in the Sanctum Sanctorum. Steve is about to launch into the story behind the tribe responsible for the shrunken heads on his desk. Fortunately, before Steve is able to launch any further into his tale of pre-Boaz anthropology, Hulk interrupts the self-absorbed Spellslinger's lecture to inform the Sorcerer Supreme that he and Val are bored shitless. Val echoes the Hulk's sentiment, although slightly more diplomatically. Fortunately, before Steve's mind can absorb the information that he might not be absolutely fascinating, his door explodes. Phew, that was a close one. Turns out that the architect of the Egress explosion was Nighthawk. Nighthawk is the Marvel Universe's knockoff of Batman, only he's a criminal, so really he's the Marvel Universe's knockoff of Owlman. He dresses... interestingly. Let's just say that like his more famous heroic counterpart, he picked a theme and he's sticking to it, and that he wears a bird beak over his nose. Yeah. Despite their relief at being spared the latest installment of Steve's 1,000-part lecture series, Interesting Things That I Own, Hulk and Val attack the door-destroying interloper. Nighthawk insists that he doesn't want to fight, which goes over about as well as that normally does. Eventually, Steve uses a combination of magic and condescension to restrain his non-teammates, and we settle in for some Nighthawk-narrated exposition. It seems that six days ago, Nighthawk got an anonymous letter threatening to expose his secret identity as billionaire playboy brute, er, Kyle Richmond, unless he showed up at the Creighton Observatory by midnight. When Kyle pulled up at the observatory in his Hawk plane, he was greeted by the other members of his former team of criminal Justice League ripoffs, which is to say crime syndicate ripoffs. The Squadron Sinister. Kyle is surprised to see his old baddie buddy, seeing as how he figured they were all either locked up in prison or dead, but he figured wrong. The other Squadron members are Dr. Spectrum, a Green Lantern ripoff only with a power prism instead of a power ring, Hyperion, not the Teen Titans Hyperion, but still an asshole and a Superman ripoff, and The Wizard, a Flash knockoff who, and I can't stress this enough, has a predominantly yellow costume, and as I just mentioned, is named The Wizard. He is also, amazingly, not even the first Marvel character with a yellow costume to be named The Wizard. Hooray! The Squadron explained to their reluctant teammate Nighthawk that they had been freed from their respective prisons, powered up, and reassembled by a cosmic dude named Nebulon, the celestial man from the place beyond the stars. Nebulon popped in and said hi, and wow. Just wow. He has gold skin, silver hair, fists, and belt, and a onesie made out of stars. Hyperion explained that in exchange for their freedom and a power boost, the squadron sold Nebulon, the planet Earth. Dick move, Hyperion. That's not even your planet. Although I still like him better than the other Hyperion. Nighthawk is like, fuck that. I might be a criminal, but the Earth is where I keep all my stuff. I'm out of here. Nebulon's like, nuh-uh, we need a non-super-powered rich dude for this plan for some unspecified reason, so you can't leave until you agree to help us. So, Nighthawk agreed to help them, but as soon as he got a chance, he pulled a Loki and snuck away from his bad guy pals, popped into the Avengers Mansion, and tried to get their help. Cool plan. Only problem was, Nebulon had gone ahead and made the entire squadron invisible and inaudible to the Avengers. Oh, snap. And that's how they get shit done in the place beyond the stars, kid. 
Fortunately, when Kyle stopped in to impotently yell and wave his hands in front of the Avengers' faces, Captain America happened to be waxing nostalgic about the time when the Defenders helped rescue the universe from a threat that they themselves created back in the Avengers Defenders War. As soon as he heard that, Nighthawk put on his trench coat and fedora, the universally accepted outfit for not at all suspicious or unusual, and headed over to the Sanctum Sanctorum to seek the Defender's assistance. Only, they were off fighting an evil space yeti, so he had to come back later and blow up their door. Huh. I'm surprised when he stopped by earlier, Nighthawk didn't run into that other guy who was wearing a trench coat and fedora who was looking for the Defender's last issue and... Oh. Oh, I get it. Uh, okay. Steve asks for the details of the scheme that needs foiling. It turns out that before the squadron sale of the Earth to Nebulon can be completed, there are some contingencies in the purchase agreement that need to be addressed. That's pretty standard. Let's see. Uh, Nebulon is responsible for the cost of inspection. Appliances are included. Squadron will have to cover the planet owner's insurance for one year. Oh, and the planet will have to be totally underwater. Yeah, that's a pretty standard contract. To fulfill the Waterworld proviso... The Squadron Sinister has built a giant laser to melt the polar ice caps, thereby flooding the planet. Shitty. Steve and the gang agree to lend a hand and do their best to thwart the planetary dampness, which is scheduled to begin at sunrise. Hooray! Nighthawk is pleased at this news, but before the bird-beaked billionaire can fill them in on any more details, he is zapped with a weird pink beam and apparently disintegrates, shouting as he does so that the Squadron must have learned of his betrayal. Whoops. Steve Strange surmises that to successfully stop the Squadron Sinister's surface-submerging scheme, the support of a certain submarine sovereign would be super sweet. So, he places a mystical FaceTime call to the recently departed defender, Namor. The avenging son of Atlantis tells Steve to fuck right off. He is too busy having a sweet new outfit and being angry at the surface-dwelling fools to get mixed up in Steve's mystical malarkey again. Steve tells his old buddy that the entire planet is in grave danger, and Namor's response is basically, Good, I fucking hate this planet anyway. God, I love Namor. So Steve kidnaps him. Damn it, Steve. Namor is about to punch the shit out of Steve, but Val intervenes and calmly explains the situation to the Atlantean prince. When he hears that the world will be totally underwater if the squadron achieves its goal, he agrees to rejoin his old comrades and fight their global real estate flipping foes. Wait, he does? I mean, don't get me wrong, hooray, and all, but didn't he just get finished saying that he hated the surface dwellers and hoped they all died? When dude's in that mode, flooding the planet is kinda his go-to move. Ah oh, well. Maybe all this real estate talk got him thinking about how he doesn't want a bunch of surface dwellers gentrifying his undersea kingdom? I mean, it'd be surface dweller corpses doing the gentrifying, but still, it'd probably try to build a zombie Whole Foods or some shit. Organic, non-GMO, free-range brains. Mmm. Anyway, the newly reassembled defenders fly up to the Arctic so they can get their thwart on. They soon spot the Squadron Sinister and their giant ice-melting laser. Also, apparently that weird pink ray thing didn't vaporize Nighthawk after all, it just teleported him to the Arctic and jammed him inside a magic snow globe prison. So, that's good I guess. The Squadron Sinister and the Defenders start tussling. Hulk beats up Hyperion. Hooray! Doctor Strange blasts Doctor Spectrum. Hooray! Namor kicks the crap out of <laughs> the Wizard. Hooray! Val fails to cut through Nighthawk's snow globe prison. Aw, oh, come on. Really? Then Nebulon shows up in his cosmic onesie and jams all the defenders into a giant magic snow globe prison. Dang. To be continued. Hey, I just realized this issue could have been called The Wizard's Evil Plan to Wet the Planet. Man, talk about missed opportunities.
As you may remember, Cory is currently vacationing on the idyllic island nation of Zandia, which seems peaceful on the outside, so surely it does not harbor a dark secret. Therefore, we expect him to return fine in no time at all. In his absence... You may know him from his podcast, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. You may know him from his new podcast, Thor, The Lightning and the Storm. You may know him from having been his bartender a couple of years ago, which is how I met him. A warm Titan of the Defense welcome for our special guest host, Miles Stokes. Hey, Hub, and hey, Internet. I am psyched to be here. Ah, we're super psyched to have you, and I know you can't hear them, but people are literally standing up and applauding right now. I can picture them in my heart of hearts and my eye of hearts. Hmm... So, what'd you think of the issue? This one? Okay, so not a whole lot happened when you get down to it. I mean, mm -hmm. there was basically a conversation, a flashback, and a fight, but I loved it. Every single one of those elements was perfectly, gloriously executed by a couple of creators that I really enjoy. I agree, and given your setup that it's basically just a flashback and a fight, the same could be said of Rocky IV, and that was a delight as well. <laughs> I'm going to assume that's true because I will embarrassedly say I have only seen half of Rocky I in that franchise. Oh my goodness. Yeah, uh, Rocky IV is basically all flashbacks, montages, and fight scenes, which is why it's in many ways the perfect movie. I watched it on cable one time, and they had to cut to commercial twice in the middle of montages. <laughs> See, I always go back to the classic film Dragon War, colon, D-War, one of the best bad movies I've ever seen, which at one point has a flashback inside a flashback that forgets it's a flashback. It's glorious. Oh, man. I'm going to have to check that out. I recommend the riff tracks. It dulls the pain. Excellent. Yeah, but I agree. This was a fun issue. Not a ton happened, but it also sets up a ton of stuff that seems like it's going to be important later. Yeah, I'm excited to see what happens here as far as the, the vengeance of the Squadron Sinister, what the deal with Nebulon is, whether he ever gets any pants. I hope not. Oh, I don't see how he possibly could. What pants could contain an entire universe? Right. And also, I mean, he's a significant enough guy that I'm assuming the reason he only has that sort of leotard plus sleeves that are the universe is that there's just more him than there is universe. That would make a lot of sense to me. The description of him super cracked me up because it sounded like Nighthawk was kind of hitting on him almost because of his description. Before us stood a being so awesome, he seemed not so much human as he did heaven in the shape of a man. <laughs> All right, the next time I'm hitting on anyone, <laughs> they are going to be heaven in the shape of a man or heaven in the shape of a woman. Man, Nighthawk's got some game. He does. My hope here, I always hope for a happy ending for my characters, whether sure. they're good guys or bad guys. I, I want things to work out. So if Nighthawk and Nebulon end up going on a date after this, they sort of uh, lick each other's wounds in the locker room or whatever <laughs> one does, maybe they're going to become a really happy couple. They'll have a great story to tell the grandkids. It's going to work out for everybody. Hope springs eternal. What did you think of the Squadron Sinister? Had you been previously from familiar with them? I knew of them. I'd seen them referenced. I'm mostly an X-Men guy and an Asgard guy, and they tend to show up in more Avengers-y books these days, mm -hmm. as I understand it. So I just knew of them. I know that they're sort of Justice League analogs. So here's the thing. They're set up as Justice League analogs, and Roy Thomas describes them as such. What they're a more direct analog for in a couple of ways is the crime syndicate, which are themselves evil analogs to the Justice League that showed up in those books. They are from Earth 3. I might be getting my universes mixed up but I'm pretty sure they're from Earth 3, and they are just straight-up evil versions of the Justice League. So instead of Superman, you have Ultraman. Instead of the Green Lantern, you have Power Ring. Instead of the Flash, you have Johnny Quick. And instead of Wonder Woman, I believe it's Superwoman. Oh, and instead of Batman, it's Owlman. And so the way that is a direct lineup to the Squadron Supreme, or the Squadron Sinister as they're known at this point, 
not only do you have the one-for-ones and you have the Batman stand-in having a beak, (laughs) but you also have Johnny Quick is a Golden Age DC character who was a hero who they're like, eh, we got this name lying around for a speedster. Let's use it. In this, there was a Marvel Golden Age speedster who first showed up in 1941 named The Wizard, and they decided to go ahead and use the name The Wizard for this guy because it's just such a great name. That is too good a name to waste. <laughs> yeah, I was confused about that because I'm sort of familiar with The Wizard in that he factors into the ridiculously complicated and multiple-time retconned backstory of Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. For a while, he was their dad before it turned out that it was actually Magneto, before it turned out that it was actually some random peasants before, I'm not really sure where they left off. Okay, was the cow lady ever their mom? Uh, I don't think she was ever their biological mom, but But she she might as well have been. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure they see her as mom. Okay, the wizard is great, and yeah, it gets super complicated when they brought him back in the 70s and he started having run-ins with the Avengers. He mostly just kept having heart attacks. That is an unfortunate sort of character trope to get hammered with. Well, it kind of makes sense if you're a super speedster. The origin of his super speed is my favorite superhero origin ever. Mongoose blood, right? Mongoose blood. He got a transfusion of mongoose blood, and it made him as fast as the Flash. I mean, that's just basic science right there. I would imagine so. I mean, I've never had a mongoose blood transfusion yet. I was going to say, maybe you should. Maybe oh, I I'm, should. We, sh- we all should, but apparently there are side effects that could lead to heart issues. I mean, maybe worth it. You get to wear a pretty sweet costume. It's I- a trade-off. I would probably go with some kind of a mongoose-themed costume. Yeah, like uh, like some kind of a Ricky Ticky Tavi type thing. As opposed to a uh, urine-themed costume? Yeah, yeah. So they, they go ahead and make the second wizard as well be a super speedster named the wizard who wears a yellow costume. That's a decision that was definitely made twice. Yeah, and was clearly well thought out both times. Yeah, this wizard seems to be a lot more, well, sinister than the original wizard. But yeah, like I said, I thought it was interesting that they decided to go that directly a parallel to the crime syndicate with these guys. Hyperion, too, his origin within the team, he's an anti-hero that actually makes a fair amount of sense. He's got a grudge against our world. You know how he's got that atom that he wears on his chest? Right, right above his impressive girdle. Yes, I, I thought that was a championship belt. I just assumed <laughs> that he was the intercontinental champion of something. It could be both. It could be. Perhaps he was the intercontinental champion of his original world, where he was the greatest hero, which was destroyed by our world. It was a microscopic universe. You know that thing where when you're a philosophy student and you get stoned and you're like, what if our universe is just one atom that's in the fingernail of a man that lives in another universe? He lived in that universe. And when we split the first atom, that was his universe that we split and it exploded it. That is actually a phenomenal origin story. Who came up with that? I believe Roy Thomas. Okay, well done, Roy Thomas. Yeah, yeah, well done, Roy Thomas on a couple of scores. But it makes sense that he would just be like, yeah, I don't care if the whole world gets destroyed. Your whole world should be destroyed. You destroyed my world. Fair is fair. I do appreciate decent motivations in our villains as opposed to, I'm a bad guy, so therefore I do bad things because I'm a bad guy. Which seems to be the motivation of both Dr. Spectrum and the Wizard. The Wizard might also be a little bit bitter that he didn't get a sweet Ricky Tiki Tavi costume. Oh man, that's his own doing. He could make himself one. He's got super speed, maybe use it for some super speed sewing. I think it's one of those external versus internal locus of control things. He just mm. blames it on the world around him, even though he had the power inside him all along. Oh, Wizard, Wizard, Wizard. What will or won't you do next? <laughs>
Yeah, so Quadrant Sinister, interesting. Nighthawk, wow. Jeez, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but yeah. that dude has a sense of style. A very specific sense of style. Indeed. I was commenting to you earlier, we could probably make this whole episode a sartorially speaking. Because, yeah, we the whole Squadron Sinister have looks that need to be talked about. None more so than Nighthawk. In addition to that, Nighthawk... Mostly at this point, just a really D-minus Batman stand-in. He's unfortunate. I don't think he has any gadgets. He doesn't have any brooding. He doesn't have a gravelly voice, I assume. He's got a hawk plane that, like, is like the bat copter, and it's got that vertical lifting and takeoff. He enjoys that about it. To be fair, I do not have a hawk plane, so sure. I, I should be impressed by this, yeah, and, and I am. People in hawkless houses shouldn't throw hawk-shaped <laughs> stones. I do appreciate that, as always, when a VTOL plane is mentioned, we have the little <laughs> explanatory box. That happened in the new Teen Titans fairly recently as well. For some reason, everything else we get to take for granted in comic books, any kind of bizarre futuristic technology, but vertical takeoff and landing, that gets its acronym and that gets explained. Well, I mean, you know, uh, in the Thor run I'm covering, and basically all Thor runs, every time anybody says Midgard, there's an asterisk <laughs> going to a caption that says Earth. Like, every single time I get it. Every comic could be somebody's first. Maybe every uh, mention of a VTOL plane could be somebody's <laughs> first. Agreed. So, in terms of the basic story structure, there's a couple of weird things that pop up. When we first see everybody hanging out in Steve's sanctorum, at first I thought, Steve is being very typically Steve and is not reading the room because he is going off on this story about the origin of the shrunken voodoo head that is sitting in his, well, in his hand at that point. And Val and Hulk are just bored shitless. And Hulk is just like, can't you play that bell that you played again? That thing was awesome. And I think he means a gong. And I love the idea that the Hulk would just call a gong a funny shaped bell. But then... I looked at it a little bit deeper, and when Nighthawk shows up and, like, he seems to explode the door frame rather than the door. So those are very specifically placed bombs that he uses. I mean, if he's a Batman analog, he has thought all of this through. Agreed. Making an entrance is his number one superpower. That's most of what he accomplishes, other than notifying the defenders. Right. Well, and really making an impressive entrance is the main thing that Batman accomplishes. Right. And I mean... And being, an unseen exit. Being an X-Factor aficionado, I do appreciate uh, not using doors as doors, or possibly using <laughs> walls as doors. Yeah. I think that's a comic book-wide trope, because, man, everybody just hate Kool-Aid Man's their way through pretty much every wall. I like how Doctor Strange just is not bothered by this. Does he just expect Wong to fix it up? Is that just his assumption? Oh, yes. It is one of a number of assumptions that Doctor Strange is making constantly. But when Nighthawk shows up, he mentions that he had been there a few hours earlier. Couple things about that. He shows up at a house. The guy's not home. The guy who answers the door tells him, hey, he'll be back in a couple of hours. Why don't you come back? His immediate next step is, well, all right, I'm exploding the door this time. It's a weird escalation that seems completely unnecessary. But also, if that just happened a few hours ago, then Doctor Strange, Val, and the Hulk had earlier that day been battling an evil space yeti, and it almost killed them, and they barely made it out with their lives and are now friends for the first time kind of since the series started. And within hours of that, they are bored with his stories? Fucking take a nap, guys. He's got a guest room. 
I mean, maybe he's just a really dry storyteller. Maybe he's telling the story for the benefit of himself. He's not, like you said, not reading the room. Right. I suppose that's fair, and that is actually pretty much in keeping with Steve's character. See, what he should have done is he should have punctuated every important event of the story he was telling with that gong. That would have made the Hulk happy. I'm not sure what Val would have gone for, but, I mean, with Bruce, that's easy. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, I'm going to need to get a gong sound effect for this podcast. <laughs> And just start using it way more, just in case the Hulk is listening. But also, I don't think that's going to make any story worse. Right? Yeah, I'd pay more attention. Okay, yeah, Thor the Lightning in the Storm and Jane Miles explain the X-Men, gongs from now on. Oh, man. Gotta get a gong. Where do we get gongs in this town? Oh, boy. I bet there is at least one artisanal gong store that will talk shit about other gong stores. You can tell from the bubbles in the edges (laughs) of the gong that each is individually handcrafted. I bet I'd be pretty good at the gong. I would play some, like, gong jazz. It's it's the gongs that I'm not hitting. You can get a surprising amount of subtlety from, from a gong strike. Oh, boy. I look forward to that. That inevitability. Let's talk about the art a little bit. It's Sal Buscema. He does a great job. You were mentioning you've been reading Sal in the Thor comics you've been reading recently. Yeah, Sal Buscema takes over for Walter Simonson a little over halfway through the run. And he's no Walter Simonson, but I mean, who is? But he does a great job with Thor. He does a great job here. I love his takes on the Defender's designs. Yeah, he does a wonderful job, really, with this whole issue. I don't feel like we give him enough credit, in part because every other issue we're reading is by George Perez. And, and how do you compete? The New Teen Titans. And it's just, it's very different styles, but George Perez is very pretty and we always comment on that. Sal Buscema does a wonderful job. I think this might be some of my favorite of his art, and in part it's because he's inked for the first time in this issue by Klaus Janssen. And it looks gorgeous, and there's a couple of panels where you can really see it looks almost like Frank Miller-style art, and lets you see how much Klaus Janssen brought to those early Daredevils, and really most of Frank Miller's work. There's a couple of panels in here that look almost like film noir style, and it's really cool to see that. I especially appreciate the use of shadow. Like, I always come back to Mike Mignola as the best uh, user of shadow, Mm -hmm. and there's a bit of that here. There was a panel you were pointing out before we started recording with Doctor Strange sort of in the foreground with a shadowed face, and it just adds so much drama and gravitas to what would otherwise just be an arrogant wizard preparing to be a dick. Right, and I feel like it works really well in the context of a really goofy storyline where it creates this dissonance that's really fun to play with, and that's kind of what I love about Bronze Age comics anyway. The Silver Age straight-up goofiness is still there, but they're trying to tie it into world events, and it creates this weird like liminal space that these comics take place in that is really fun. And I feel like, yeah, especially with Klaus Janssen's art, it kind of brings that to this comic in a way that is going to get more accentuated later, I think, when Steve Gerber is going to take over some of the writing chores, but is really fun and I think works really well. Speaking of writing, so we have Len Wein doing this issue. Is it Wein? How do you say that? I say Wein. I'm pretty sure it is, but I notoriously mispronounce comic book writers and artists' names pretty much constantly. I spent like a half hour straight trying to figure out how to say Busema, and I'm still not sure that I, (laughs) which is to say we, have it right. Yeah, I'm going to go with Busema. But if you're at all concerned, just call him our pal Sal. There we go. I I wish he was my pal. Uh, in many ways he is. Oh, I feel great about that. Unfortunately, most of those ways are known as lying. Ah. 
I'm not going to worry too much about that. Nice. It's not making it up. It's making it good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Len Wein. So I'm, of course, mainly familiar with him from being the writer of Giant Size X-Men number one, where the all-new, all-different team with Storm and Wolverine and everybody showed up. That issue is often attributed to Chris Claremont. It was not, in fact, him. So it was cool getting a chance to read an issue by Wein that was not this gigantic landmark one-shot and just sort of right. a more day-to-day story. Yeah, it's really fun. He wrote the last issue, too, and it was... I mean, especially after all the Crusades bullshit, it was really a breath of fresh air and really fun. And he was writing partners with Marv Wolfman for a long time. They actually wrote some of the original Teen Titans series, a couple of them, before they got kicked off the book for trying to introduce a black character. (sighs) So, yeah, not great. But those issues were a little bit more fun, and I like Wolfman. But you can really tell that more of the sense of of whimsy and fun in the writing came from Len Wein. And yeah, he's had just an amazing career. He also, I believe, was the co-creator of Swamp Thing and potentially Man Thing, depending. Uh, I know there was a weird thing where they came out within months of each other and were created by four people who were all kind of roommates with each other. And they both basically, they all came up with the idea together and pitched it to both publishers and were really surprised that they both went for it. I'm wondering if this was where they were talking about universes stored in somebody's fingernail while super stoned. <laughs> I would imagine so. From the uh, Marvel Comics The Untold Story, the Sean Howe book, I kind of get the impression that that was most conversations at at least Marvel Comics in the 70s. So many drugs involved in the creation of all of our favorite heroes. And when you read the comics, it really comes through. <laughs> yup. <laughs> So there was one scene that actually really struck me as funny. It was when Nighthawk is unable to communicate with the Avengers, and he overhears them talking about the Defenders, and that's how he knows to come and crash their pad. But he's like, I couldn't interrupt his conversation no matter how hard I tried. And it struck me as like, wow, for a white billionaire, that must be his worst nightmare. (laughs) And I could kind of see Doctor Strange like in the background just being like, You couldn't interrupt a conversation? You poor man! I'm so sorry. We must help this man, this this poor, aggrieved billionaire. It turns out that was actually Strange's entire motivation for signing up. (laughs) Saving the world? Meh! Helping a white guy that couldn't fully exercise his privilege? Well, that will not stand. No, not not in Doctor Strange's sanctum sanctorum. So swears Doctor Strange. I, uh, I do appreciate that later on he gets to have a so swears off with his opponent, Doc oh, Spectrum. Oh, man, his word battle with Doc Spectrum will definitely be coming up later. But I really liked the way they paired people off. Like, it made sense, the Hulk versus Hyperion. They're both the powerhouses. And then the Battle of the Docks was absolutely my favorite. Like, mm-hmm. Battle of Megalomaniacal, ultra-powerful Doctor S's went really, really well. And then... Honestly, the Namor versus the Wizard thing felt kind of tacked on, but I'll take that, especially considering that Val got to f- try to fight a glass globe. And from what you were saying, the group that the Squadron Sinister is based on, they actually had a female warrior, so where's her analog? Yeah. Val would have had a great opponent. Yeah, I know. There was no reason to not bring her in, and, and they could have had Nebulon be like, oh, and I found this person, too. It's not like the Squadron Sinister had, like, a super cohesive origin where they'd all been hanging out for years. It was the Grandmaster, uh, who's going to be played by Jeff Goldblum in a movie soon. Very excited. Um, just found them. 
and was like, I'll throw these guys together. They're all powerful and they can fight the Avengers. Right. And it's not like there isn't a precedent set within the defenders of random people showing up and not being on the team yet fighting by their side. Yeah. Yeah. They absolutely could have brought in some kind of a superwoman analog. If I have one complaint about this issue, it's just that Val gets so little to do. That's true. That bothered me as well. Although she had said in the previous issue that she was going to quit the team to go find herself, so maybe some of that was her choice. She sort of got Asgardian senioritis at this point. Yeah, kinda. (laughs) Speaking of not having very much to do, I liked that Hyperion's whole role in the laser that was melting the ice cap was holding the thing aloft. They needed to bust him out of a tiny, like, super powerful Phantom Zone, basically, globe so that he could act as a table. Yeah, the motivations for why each character needed to be there were a little iffy. They never explained why they needed to have Nighthawk there. Right, it's just, it's implied there was a reason, he references the reason, and we, the audience, never find out. I wonder if Len Wein just couldn't really figure out where to go with that, and so just sort of glossed over it. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense why they needed the wizard either. It looked like Dr. Spectrum was doing something with the laser's creation. But as for the others, yeah, like, Wizard, I guess, was just running around it real fast, and Hyperion needed to act as a super strong table for them. Yeah, it seemed a little bit odd there. I do appreciate the laser gun itself, though. Like, it reminded me of nothing so much as an old Masters of the Universe playset. Oh, that whole totally. science fiction fantasy mix. Yeah, it looked really cool. I, I want that playset. I just want one of those full size. I'm not going to melt in the ice caps, don't get me wrong. I just kind of want to have it. I have bad news for you, Miles. <laughs> Somebody beat you to it. Well, I'm not going to, you know, help. Sure, I appreciate that. <laughs> but yeah, no, giant laser. There's all kinds of things you could do with that. Um, Write your name on the moon? Mm-hmm. Chairface Chippendale did it, that in the exactly. tip. Partially. Open bottles. Sure, you could make a lot of popcorn in that one guy's house, like in Real Genius. Ah, working in the Kilmer, which has the connection to Batman, which has the connection to Nighthawk. It's all connected. Six degrees of Squadron Sinister. (laughs) (laughs) That's my new romantic comedy. I'm going to start production tonight. Excellent. We also never found out why Nighthawk was either dead or not dead. As far as when he gets disintegrated, kind of, but then he's in a bubble later. But then he's in like a Phantom Zone bubble. I mean, Nebulon does have the entire universe contained in his torso, groin, and arms. He he can do a lot of shit. Oh, he's got the whole world in his groin. (laughs) That is a vivid mental image. Even more vivid than the initial costume design. It's weird that Nebulon showed up and contacted three imprisoned or potentially dead dudes? And was like, these are the dudes that I should purchase the planet from. Rather than just, he's clearly more powerful than everybody. Why doesn't he just take the planet? There's some weird Manifest Destiny shit going on that I can't figure out in this issue. The idea of selling the world. Right. I mean, it's certainly not the only Marvel selling the world story. We have Lila Shaney's first appearance in New Mutants Annual number one. Right. My, my personal favorite. But yeah, he uh, he seems to enjoy hanging back and letting others do things, even if it's way less efficient. We see that in the big fight in the issue. Yeah, I guess that's fair. And it, and it also, I guess if he had been like sitting back and looking at like human history, there is certainly a fair amount of precedent set for selling land that doesn't belong to people to each other right why stop at a simple region or nation just do the whole world more efficient and also there is kind of from a certain perspective would almost make sense to just well i'll find the strongest guy 
and just assume that he owns the place. Like, I think to a certain extent, yeah, looking at human history, you could make that assumption. Hyperion being the strongest, eh, I mean, clearly the Hulk is a little bit stronger than him. But the dude does have a point that he got hit smack in the chest with Thor's hammer and he's fine. And he also does have a very impressive belt slash girdle. You were mentioning really that, might, that might signify his victory over whoever. Maybe that was the reason. So if we're just going by belt buckles, then there's a chance that if this had happened just a few years later, Nebulon would have tried to purchase the planet from uh, Charlie Daniels. That is possible. I'm, yeah, okay, I can't really think of any. Yeah, I think you, I think you got it. Oh, man, Nebulon went down to Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the second movie I'll be filming tonight. <laughs> Excellent. Looking forward to it. I think we do have to talk about when Namor shows up because there's so much that happens there. There are emotional yeah. twists and turns. Oh, there is an boy. amazing explanation for a fashion choice. <laughs> okay, so yes, Namor shows up. I mean, it makes sense that they would want to contact him. The idea is that the world's going to be underwater. So yeah, you want a Namor. Absolutely. I mean, frankly, you want a Namor anyway. He did just quit the team, like, two issues ago. Yeah, but when does that ever stop, Doctor Strange? That's fair. There, There is kind of an interesting thing going on, though, where, yeah, at the end of issue 11, pretty much the whole team quits except for Val. And then you get a new writer, Len Wein, the next issue. So clearly, Engelhart was like, all right, I'm going to clean house, let the writer take over and rebuild however he wants. And the first two new members that he brings in are the Hulk and Namor. Yeah, Len Wein liked it the way it was. He was like Jim Lee in the 90s. He didn't like any of this newfangled Siege Perilous stuff. Too fangled. No thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I get it. it. It is just a little bit weird. But yeah, Doctor Strange shows up and basically just is like, hey, you don't seem like you want to help. So I'm going to put this bubble around you and then make you help. And then Val will explain things to you and you'll be like, oh, okay, that's good. And it kind of worked out. I was surprised that Namor was not substantially more hot-headed. Yeah. Well, both physically and metaphorically, Namor is surprisingly level-headed. <laughs> could balance books on that thing. <laughs> Man, and how. But yeah, he gets this new costume, which we will definitely talk about later. The origin of the costume is actually kind of interesting. I was wondering if we were going to get to that. I had kind of hoped that his explanation of... It is a long, unpleasant story, Val, one I would rather not go into here. Like, I like the idea of him just making it far more dramatic than it might otherwise be. Like, it turned out it was just laundry day, and that's what he had sitting around. <laughs> yeah, that's how I would like to describe all of my outfit changes. Unfortunately, it actually is pretty dramatic. I think it was in Submariner 67 that it happened really recently that he got this. Interestingly enough, that comic is written by Steve Gerber, who's going to take over this series soon. Ah. Um, but he was exposed to some kind of weird nerve gas that made him lose his ability to breathe air. But he could still breathe underwater. And then Reed Richards made him that suit. And for some reason, that suit enables him to breathe air. Okay, so I know aquatic creatures have gills to bring the air in through the water. Sure. Maybe those uh, fin-like attachments in his underarms are the equivalent for him for breathing air. So if he has his arms too close to his sides, then his face starts turning purple? Yeah, I think that probably is about right. He, Yeah, he breathes by flapping his arms. That sounds perfectly dignified for the Prince of Atlantis. Well, I mean, he works it into, you know jutting his hands on his hips a fair amount. <laughs> Gesturing I, dramatically. I don't think they even needed to tell him that he had to do that. Of course he's just going to constantly. Reed Richards just assumed, as he does. Right. 
Which I think having Reed Richards make him that costume may have been the part that was too unpleasant to talk about. <laughs> it's like, I, I now owe Reed Richards a favor. Interestingly enough, in that comic book, I think largely because it's written by Steve Gerber, Reed Richards has this weird little soliloquy he does that is basically like, I don't know, man, maybe Namor's right to want to destroy the entire surface world. <laughs> we are pretty terrible. Reed Richards historically has been just a couple bad do- days away from super villainy, so... And I think that's fair. I mean, people are the worst. Well, if it weren't for geese, people would be the worst. Fucking geese, right? Man. One of the longest uh, items of research we've ever had on Explain the X-Men was figuring out how geese would have interacted with Apocalypse. It got surprisingly complicated. Oh, man. They I have to listen to that. It's uh, an episode that I would remember if I were better at remembering episodes. <laughs> but we did bring in a librarian and everything. Wow. I'm, I'm going to have to check that out. I thought I was caught up, but... I like gaining knowledge i don't necessarily like retaining it yeah same here yeah. it's always fun having listeners point out things that you said that you have no recollection of like wow I, I said a smart thing i'm great there's a couple of listeners that follow me on twitter that are like maybe a year behind on the podcast and they keep referencing these things and i have no idea what they're talking about i have to like look it up and i was like oh that is a thing that i said okay wonder why i said that <laughs> Where would we be without our listeners, aside oh, from gosh. talking to empty rooms? I don't even like to think about it. Best not. Best not. You guys are great. You're no geese. Unless you're geese. In which case, watch out. And if you're the Hulk, insert gong sound here. Tell you what, let's uh, let's get into the minutia. Rick, would you care to sing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. All right, thanks, Rick. What would you like to start with, Miles? I mean, part of me wants to save the best for last, but I don't think I can go much longer without going into sartorially speaking. Sartorially speaking, Nighthawk. I mean, clearly, like, I I, I like Namor's new outfit. It's a good new outfit. Sure, sure. But Nighthawk, I mean, everything about this guy, let's start at the top. He's got a beak over his nose. It's not just, like, a beak-like protrusion. No. It's a straight-up beak of a small bird. It's like Groucho glasses, except for a beak instead. And in addition to that, he's got, like, Doctor from Dune eyebrows that are just, like, poking way off the side of his head like they're antennas. It is a attention to detail that is way over the top. Like, the rest of his outfit is just... Maybe like a medieval knight, kind of, but he's got like the big cape that has like arched wings almost on it. Must be very hard for him to go through doors. Maybe that's why he blew up Doctor Strange's door. He couldn't have gotten through it otherwise. Oh, yeah. Before when he came in, he was wearing the trench coat and fedora look. I'm still just, he does say that he had been there earlier and then he came back. It's possible that there was a simultaneous visit from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Raphael, or (laughs) Ben Grimm, or Godzilla, any of the people who have used trench coat and and fedora as disguise. But if it was him, it would make sense that he would be like, yeah, well, in that outfit, I could get through the door. This, I I got nothing. I'm strife over here. (laughs) Hence the plan B. (laughs) Not a bad plan. I mean, Hulk continually refers to him as bird nose. What else would you call him? Yeah, what else could you call him? He has a bird's nose. And really, the rest of his team refers to him similarly as, like, beak face and stuff. Yeah. I mean, criminals are a cowardly and superstitious <laughs> lot. Therefore, bird nose. Well, at that point, though, it would be like crime fighters are a cowardly and superstitious <laughs> lot. 
Therefore, bird nose. <laughs> I, I I don't want to ignore the rest of the costume, though, because the cape's impressive, the bird sure. nose is impressive, the very confusing eyebrows are. But I do enjoy that the sort of bird iconography, the almost dark phoenix symbol on his chest, yeah. does extend out into his gloves in such a way that it suggests that that bird just has giant, like, punching glove hands. Ooh. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. It's really just, it's a stunning look. I'm really glad we, uh, this is a spoiler and I'm sorry, but we're going to see a lot more of Nighthawk in the future pages of The Defenders. And really for what started off as a pretty shitty Batman knockoff, they're really going all in with him. And I appreciate that. And uh, I mean, I know the whole squadron sticks around to this day. Didn't Nighthawk just get his own brief series? A different Nighthawk, I think though, right? Yeah. He's been showing up in Occupy Avengers and... It's definitely a different Nighthawk. <laughs> like, way less goofy. I'm, I'm really not familiar with the current iterations of the Squadron, and specifically Nighthawk. But uh, from what I've seen of him, he seems more like the Midnighter, kind of. From... Very darkety, very gritty, very violent. Yeah, yeah. This Nighthawk is like a Adam West Batman. Yeah, a lot of people are throwing around chum in this issue, which I appreciated. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of, Adam West. Yeah, I know, I know. One of the the tweets that I saw about his passing was, and I think my favorite one was by uh, the artist Adam Hughes. Have you seen that one? Uh, I'm not sure. He got a signature from Adam West at one point, and Adam West who asked who he should make it out to, and he said Adam, and Adam West said yes. <laughs> And he said, no, my name's Adam. And Adam West said, oh, I haven't seen you at the meetings. <laughs> oh, man, now I miss Adam Isn't West that even more. Charming? That is, it's just delightful. Yeah, he's definitely my Batman that I grew up with. Like, I mean, they were obviously reruns when I was watching them, like 20 years removed almost. But like when I was a kid, I didn't get that they were comedy. I was invested in those stories and I was super excited in them. And I feel like he was what a Batman should be. Very earnest and good guy. You can, I can excuse a lot for earnestness, and I don't have to excuse a lot for the old no. stuff because it was great. But yes, the central quality, that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's the kind of Batman that Nighthawk was. And I liked it. I liked it. Other costumes. You, you've got Hyperion, which I don't understand. He's the only person from his universe. Why is he wearing a little Hamburglar mask? <laughs> I think he just likes it. I think he just feels naked without it. Maybe his yeah. face gets cold right around his eyes. Oh, that, that that makes sense, actually. It certainly doesn't disguise him very much. I mean, there aren't too many Lou Ferrigno-looking dudes with little Dutch boy haircuts bopping around the universe. I, I would imagine you saw that guy, you would just be like, that's Hyperion. Or I thought it was, but there's two inches around <laughs> right above his nose that are obscured, so probably a different dude. The use of the domino mask always confuses me in these situations. Entirely reasonable. Maybe it's part of his face. Maybe in this universe contained inside one's thumbnail, everyone just has raccoon eyes. Maybe they evolved from raccoons. Ah. Like we evolved from apes. I mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes sense why he's so evil. Ah, <sighs> fucking raccoons. Those tiny little hands. Oh, terrifying. Adorable, but legitimately terrifying. There's something about a raccoon where, like, have, have you had one stand on its hind legs and hiss at you? Uh, never in person, no. I, I have, and it's very, very unsettling, because I'm so much bigger than a raccoon, it makes me feel like it knows something that I don't know, that it's not afraid of me. Like, does he have a knife? Oh, man. I think he might have a knife. Has he been uh, composing a database of the weaknesses of every human around him, like Professor Xavier and or Batman style, oh. and so he's just waiting? What would your weakness be? 
ironically, raccoons. Oh, well, I guess that's kind of easy for him then. Yeah. He went through a lot of work for no reason. Huh. You idiot. Fucking raccoons. Although now I'm worried that we're antagonizing raccoons, and that might not go so well. Mm. Do they like gongs? We could play a gong. You've also got a situation where both Dr. Spectrum and the Wizard have blue hoods that cover up most of their face, which was confusing for me a couple of times. Could be strategically advantageous, though. If you have something very tall, a wall of some sort, and you just see the top of one of their head, you wouldn't know which one it was. You wouldn't know which powers to counter. Right, or if they formed a wrestling tag team, like Hyperion obviously was on when Mm -hmm. he got his belt, they could switch out, and uh, the referee wouldn't know that one of them wasn't the legal man in the ring. Oh, right, and you know, this is a heel team rather than a face team. Obviously, they would be doing that shit all the time. Fucking Dr. Spectrum. I do love the guy's outfit, though. I, I love that he too. has the red, the yellow, and the blue. Like, he's uh, branding is very important in podcasting, certainly, and it's right. even more important for supervillains, and he is on fucking point. He really is. Plus, he's got that, like, 90s cross-color look going, and it's really dumb-looking, but I actually really like that outfit. I mean, it can be it can be both. You can be awesome and terrible at the same time. And It's true. Thank yes, goodness. Oh, right. I mean, I mean that's been my plan. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how all of our podcasts work. <laughs> Which brings us to Namor's new costume. I really like it. Yeah. I I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the tiny green Speedo. There's something about this outfit, though. It's like they wanted him to put on a shirt, and he's like, oh, okay, is this how a shirt is? Like, <laughs> I've heard of shirts. totally unfamiliar with them, or is just fucking with them. Or, here's the third option. He is trying to show solidarity with black comic book heroes in the 70s. None of whom got a whole shirt. Right. You have your Luke Cage. You have your, uh, was it Black Lightning where the original Black costume Lightning, did that? Black Lightning, the Falcon, uh, Tyrock, uh, Cyborg. None of the, no black character that I can think of that was created between, say, 1970 and 1985 got a whole shirt. Black Goliath would be another example. And in that one, it doesn't even make sense that he doesn't have a whole shirt. Most of them just get the low-cut V-neck. But his, they just cut a square out so that you see his underboob and half of his abs. So it's sort of a slightly lower Power Girl look. Yeah, yeah. But he's just got a big square missing from it because they're just like, oh, wait, that's right. You don't get a whole shirt. But Namor talks about the fact in a recent issue that he felt like an outsider his whole life, that in Atlantis, the blue-skinned majority that rules looks down on him. I think he might be trying to show solidarity with black comic book characters and be like, no, I'm going to have the, the, the same kind of outfit. I like to think that Namor McKenzie is indeed a good ally. I choose to believe that, and this outfit, I think, chooses to believe that. Well, and there's also the fact, of course, that he was referred to by Hope Summers years and years later in X-Men as the Prince of Abs-Lantis. I mean, if you got it, flaunt it, honey. Yeah, I mean, seriously. When he starts to flex those imperious pecs... (laughs) I was on a Smash Fiction podcast. I don't know if you're familiar. It's great. You should totally check it out. Excellent. I was all prepared to pretend that I liked it, but then I didn't have to. I love it when that happens. But uh, I got to debate Namor versus Aquaman, and I took the Namor side, and uh, the Speedos definitely came into it. I think that that may have been what swayed the argument in my favor. That was the tiny revealing tipping point. (laughs) Yeah, but I I genuinely enjoy this new outfit. I like the weird little webbing under his arms. Yeah, him and Um, Spider-Man. Yeah, it's a decent look. Reminds me of the old Silverhawk action figures, too. I haven't thought about them in so long. I loved those so much. 
Oh man, I just found out. So one of the things I keep forgetting as someone in his 30s in 2017 is that that stuff you barely remember from your childhood, you can just Google that shit. Yeah. Yeah, there were these action figures. They were all on zip lines, these neon green and pink. I used to have those those? Skyriders. I believe so. Uh, And they were basically the greatest thing in the universe. And for years, I was convinced I just dreamed them. Man, we live in a wonderful, wonderful future time in some ways. In certainly some ways. Yes, in that specific way. Yes. Maybe that's how we could fix the present. Zip lines. You know what? It couldn't hurt. Zip lines and gongs. Oh, man, I like this future we're creating. Okay, okay, step one and two complete. At least the conceptualization of them. Sure, sure. Blah, 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 utopia. Perfect. Therefore, those three little dots, utopia. Got it. Well, amazingly, I believe that finishes up our sartorially speaking segment. (laughs) Just a few words that we had to share. (laughs) Let's go with I just gotta be a sucker. Which character in this issue acted like the fat boys in Crush Groove and just had to be a sucker acting against their previously established motivation in a way that furthered the plot. Okay, so this is kind of a cheat, but having listened to all of your episodes, I know that that's a common thing on this show, so I'm just going to go for it. Indeed. So I think I'm going to go for the Squadron Sinister en masse for bringing in Nighthawk for reasons that I can't think of any way they would make sense. It made life much harder for them. It will presumably have architected their defeat later since this is why the Defenders got involved. What did they actually need Nighthawk for? I can't think of anything he could have done to build this big He-Man gun that would have made the risks worth it. How are you going to build a giant space laser without a guy with the bird nose? Maybe he's got attachments in there. Maybe it's like a Leatherman and he's got a little flathead Ooh. screwdriver. I mean, it would hurt his neck a lot to turn his head like that. He'd have to keep doing it like when you can't get the little Ikea wrench in very well. <laughs> oh, that would be adorable. <laughs> I'm picturing it right now. It would take so long. <laughs> Worth every second. I think that is a fair assessment. I think that's a pretty good just gotta be a sucker. I actually went with Namor. He shows up. He doesn't want to join the Defenders. Steve tells him the entire world is in peril. He's like, I don't care. They explain to him that if this plan goes through, the whole world will be underwater. And he's like, oh, you're right. I got to do this. Yeah, Why does he care if the world's underwater? I mean, that would be great He's tried to make the world underwater many times in the past. I don't understand what exactly swayed him. I know he is fond of Val and respects her. And historically has a weakness for strong, independent women. Especially blonde ones. Yes, but it didn't really fit that it's like, oh, yeah, I guess when you put it that way, I better do this thing with you guys. So here's my no prize explanation. Okay. What's the point if if he's not the one to do it? If somebody else gets credit for this grand task? Gotcha. Nobody beats up my little brother, the surface world, except for me. (laughs) Like Wolverine said about Cyclops in Secret Wars. (laughs) He may be a jerk, but he's our jerk. Fair enough. So, sound effects. What was your favorite sound effect in the issue? So I did really enjoy the watery font used for poof as Namor was teleported into the Sanctum Sanctorum. I, I did too, and that was actually my backup as well. It uh, is it is my backup too, yeah. Yeah, I like the idea especially that doing magic makes the sound effect poof. Or maybe it's just Doctor Strange saying poof. Oh, he might have been doing that. Poof! So swears Doctor Strange. <laughs> so poofs Doctor Strange. But yeah, that that was my backup. What was your what was your number one? So I kind of have to go for just simply because it's so much fun to say the sound that the Hulk makes when Hyperion smashes him into the indeterminate background. Sure. Which is thrunch. 
I liked the thrunch a lot. I also liked the fact that in that, the action was obscuring part of the word. I like it when the sound effect is built into the panel in that way. Yeah, that's something Walter Simonson does a ton in his Thor run. I always love it. Yeah, Sal Buscema has been doing that a fair amount too. I decided to go with thwoom, the noise that an exploding door frame makes. It's both just the fact that it was just the door frame that exploded, so he could maybe kick in the door as he was doing it, but I really enjoyed the word thwoom, and uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was my number one choice. That is a very solid choice. Thank you. If either of us ever blows up the door, let's let the other know whether in fact that's the sound effect. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. So swears Dr. Stokes! Oh, nice. Do you have a doctorate? I mean, sure. Okay, World Christian Ship Ministries, Honorary Doctorate of Divinity, only costs $35. Ah, I'm a reverend in both the uh, Church of the Dude and the Universal Life Church uh, from the internet, so... I'm, yeah, I'm like, may, may as well. I, uh, I am actually ordained through the World Christian Ship Ministries because when I was 16, I sent away for an ad in the back of the Weekly World News to become so. <laughs> and I have used it to perform several ceremonies. It's been fun. I'm sure they were beautiful. Some of them. I got about a 60% success rate. It's better than chance. Indeed. So, getting into more of the meat of it now, I guess. What was your favorite? I suspect we may have the same one here. I had a couple of maybes, and then I hit that big two-page spread. God, that thing was beautiful. Oh, man, where we see Nighthawk's face looking horrified in the background, looming over everything. On the left side, we have the He-Man laser with the Squadron Sinister, minus Nighthawk, shooting a glacier. We have a big tidal wave destroying a city and everyone fleeing. Like, there's so much happening there. Yeah, and it's really beautiful. And back then, a two-page spread was kind of a rarity, so... You really had to just enjoy it when it happened. I really did enjoy that, but I actually decided to go with one that we discussed earlier. Oh, yeah? Which is the scene that is Doctor Strange, the Hulk, and Val hanging out. And Hulk wants Doctor Strange to play the gong. But the shading on Doctor Strange's face in that as he's holding these voodoo dolls, it's what we talked about earlier with the Klaus Janssen inks. And I really appreciated the gravitas that that kind of film noir shading led to this ultimately pretty goofy situation. Right. I mean, like you were saying before, that contrast, that is so much of what's fun about comics like this. Like, they're ridiculous, but you can get super into them. You don't have to appreciate it ironically. Yeah. Like, the quality is just there. Yeah, it's the same thing with, like, like we were talking about with, like, the Adam West Batman. It's like, when I was a kid, I just absolutely appreciate appreciated it on a surface level and then you can go back and appreciate the camp too but there was some solid storytelling that you can just follow the adventure with as well mm-hmm. good old post irony indeed all right favorite words what were the best words in this issue so i had a couple of choices i know that you normally do the insults mostly in titan's land sure but if they if they happen to be the best words overall take them I did appreciate that Namor was hitting the wizard where it hurt, both verbally as well as physically. <laughs> Braggart, the fastest thing about you is your mouth. Like, oh man, you get the impression that the wizard, like, he prides himself on his speed. It's right there in his yeah. name, along with, you know, peeing. Right. And so to be accused of failing at the very thing at which he dedicates all of his efforts, damn, Mackenzie, cold. Yeah, as he was saying that, was he in fact punching him right in the wizard? I'm gonna say... <laughs> No, not unless he hangs real, real low, because that was his ankle. All right, fair enough. Still, pretty solid. Man, I had a couple of choices for best words. There was some fun stuff going on in this. One of those was in the climactic fight when the Hulk and Hyperion are punching each other, and the captioning says, 
They meet with an impact that radiates staggering shockwaves that cause the ground beneath them to shudder violently, and countless miles away geologists look to their seismographs, then shake their heads in disbelief. That is how you add scale. You can either show Dr. Peter Corbeau in Starcore <laughs> uh, looking in awe at whatever's going on, or you can have narration like that. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Peter Corbeau is probably a seismologist as well, right? I mean, he's a pretty much everythingologist. Yeah. So like like most doctors in the Marvel Universe. probably somewhere shaking his head in disbelief. He is one of those mentioned. And actually, talking about ridiculously unnecessarily epic narration, as the defenders approach this battle... Dawn in the Arctic, white upon white, streaked with banners of gold and vermilion, and this morning dotted with a handful of humanoid shapes, the Dynamic Defenders! It's just kind of beautiful. I mean, we're, we're talking like some rosy-fingered Dawn Odyssey shit here. That is some beautiful purple prose going on in there. Purple, vermilion, gold, white. <laughs> I think my favorite, though, is... Well, okay, there there is a really fun one early on where Doctor Strange is trying to get the Hulk to calm down. He puts him in the Crimson Bands of Ceterac. Which are drawn really, really well. I love the shading on that. It makes it look so three-dimensional. Uh-huh. But Hulk finally says, Hulk will calm down, but Hulk will not like it. <laughs> I really like that, and I really like Doctor Strange's response. Is so Doctor Strange... No one asked you to like it, my friend. Just abide it. <laughs> so we have the Hulk here being actually very mature, acknowledging and giving space to his emotions while yeah. understanding that he needs to act a certain way. And Doctor Strange is just being a parent. He's being Doctor Strange. Damn it, Dad Strange. <laughs> <laughs> but my absolute favorite dialogue was the word battle between the Doctor S's. You have Dr. Spectrum saying, Stand still, little man, and I will try to make your death as quick and painless as possible. So swears Dr. Spectrum. Never will I stand helplessly while the future of a world hangs in the balance, madman. So swears Dr. Strange. You may be agile, doctor, but agility alone cannot save you from the awesome might of my power prism. Perhaps, but there are many defenses available to the master of the mystic arts, and the shield of the seraphim is but one of them. 50% magic, 50% shit talk. Yeah, and I loved that exchange, I loved that fight, and I loved the dialogue there, and that was, to me, the best words. I think I'm going to uh, concede to your choice. Oh. I think you're right there. Oh, shucks, thanks. Which brings us to best defender, worst offender. In this issue, who was, in your opinion, the worst offender? I feel so terrible saying this because she's my favorite character in The Defenders. I love her when she shows up elsewhere in Fearless Defenders, occasionally in Thor stuff, but Valkyrie, the only thing she really does, aside from attempting to talk people down and only sort of succeeding, is she gets punched into a couch and she fails to cut through a bubble. Yeah, and unlike the Hulk, she does not calm down <laughs> and the, the situation has been resolved. Hulk has been calmed down and is about to stop punching Nighthawk. And she's just like, fuck it, I'm still pissed off. And she goes to attack him with the sword still. Also, her confidence in Dragonfang, her new sword, she's like, it can cut through anything. I'll have you free in no time. She has used that sword exactly once. Unless he is trapped inside of a steamroller, which he doesn't appear to be, she can't definitively say that this sword can free him necessarily. I mean, we don't know what she's been doing between issues. I realize there have only been a couple of hours based on the timeline that we've established <laughs> right. here. But maybe she went out to a Home Depot and just tried cutting through various items and materials there. You know, some PVC, some granite, some plywood. That some... sounds so much fun. I want to do that so badly. God, that would be great, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be just like a really fun time? It sounds also kind of expensive, potentially. 
Nothing's that expensive if you got a magic sword. <laughs> I don't know if you take plastic. What about dragon steel? Oh, okay, lady. Okay, just, just everybody see you later. accepts dragon steel. <laughs> but yeah, she did a bad job, and I don't like saying it either. Uh, but yeah, in this issue, she is the worst offender, unfortunately. <sighs> She'll have her day again. Just... She, she will redeem herself, I have no doubt. But yeah, kind of a bummer. Conversely, best defender. So I think I got to go for Namor. He's, okay. got, he's got an emotional journey as he goes from utter disdain for the surface to realizing his own self-interest to possibly having an ulterior motivation that he does not disclose about wanting to be the best at destroying the Earth in a watery fashion. He's got a great uh, snide explanation for his outfit without having to go into the harshness of his rival Reed Richards making him an abs-exposing outfit. <laughs> and he outsmarts the wizard, is a jerk to him, and then once he gets bored, punches him into the sky. Man, yeah, he did do a really good job. I actually had the Hulk. He was able to calm his savage beast inside him when, at Doctor Strange's request and was surprisingly mature. And he punched the shit out of Hyperion, who is crazy strong. But, as you describe it, I think I'm going to have to go with Namor. That, that was pretty rad. I, I mean, I love the Hulk, and I especially love the Hulk as written by Len Wein. But uh, uh, Hulk did also come up with uh, Bird Nose. And he did get called Lettuce Lips, and I realize that's not his action, but he did enable that bit of dialogue. Sure, by having lettuce-like lips. Hmm, that's a tough one. I'm gonna go with Namor. I think you're. I think you're right. But uh, but strong honorable mention for the Hulk in this mm-hmm. situation. He gets the slightly smaller wrestling belt slash girdle. <laughs> right, right. He's not the universal champion, but let's say the U.S. title. Okay, that seems reasonable. Okay. All right, well, that wraps up the minutiae, but we do still have one segment. Thanks to our generous donors. We have a new segment that's name is somewhat in flux. This time, let's go with Brad Reed's suggestion. Long story short. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one before. So, in May of 1974... At this point, Wong had struck up a bit of a friendship with Jarvis. They'd met at several clubs. They have talked about having potentially unappreciative super employers. And uh, Jarvis had an idea. The 100th anniversary of the Kentucky Derby was coming up, and they thought they might take in a little bit of horse racing. Now, one of the fun aspects of the Kentucky Derby is elaborate hats. And Jarvis had, of course, explained this to Wong. Wong says, oh, I've seen an elaborate hat or two in my day, and immediately set to work. And he concocted a exact replica of Galactus's hat. Good choice. He, it is. He had maybe a slightly different idea of fancy hat than many of the people at the Kentucky Derby, but he stuck with the theme and he went for it. And he did a very good job. In fact, he did maybe a little too good a job. It uh, caused a bit of a panic. It hadn't been that long since Galactus had been seen there, and Galactus is pretty big. People forget Galactus isn't that big. Galactus is like 30 feet tall. Yeah, that's certainly a lot bigger than the average person, but it's a scale and people had been drinking a lot of mint juleps. It caused a bit of a panic. Wong had to go home. Jarvis told him, hey, buddy, I'm really sorry. You really, truly wonderful hat, but you're causing a bit of a disruption and spooking some of the horses. So Wong went home to change. Right when he got there, Nighthawk was making his entrance. That door explodes as Wong gets near it. (laughs) Suddenly, not only is he wearing a Galactus hat, but he is not wearing anything else. 
It was X-Men rules. His costume was destroyed, and he was left naked. And he explained the X-Men listeners who are listening right now, take a drink. Wong made it into the house after a few minutes, but he did have to run around the block a couple of times. During that time, he was spotted by a young, impressionable Ray Stevens, (laughs) who saw a naked, galactus-hatted Wong running around, and, well, on May 18th, went ahead and released the song, The Streak, as was inspired by our good friend Wong. And that's Wong's story, short. (laughs) I have a newfound appreciation for that song, and in fact, for Wong. (laughs) Well, Wong actually had a pretty busy month, because before he headed over to Kentucky, he did a bit of other traveling and was in Philadelphia. Now, as we know from the current Doctor Strange miniseries, the Chris Pachalo and Jason Aaron run of which just wrapped up, when you're a wizard, when you're a magician, it really does a number on your body, and you have to eat some pretty gross food. So Wong was researching the gross food of the nation, nay, the world, and ended up in Philadelphia, because he had heard that a traditional Philly cheesesteak for its cheese actually uses cheese whiz, and to do otherwise is improper. He was a little horrified, but wanted to investigate. However, his trip was not to be a simple one, because... The infamous visible seams of the local veteran stadium, the uh, astroturf that was very poorly done and caused many an injury, were in fact seams between our world and that of the Dark Dimension. Son of a bitch, I always suspected it. Right? That's why I don't like astroturf. I mean, there, there are potential problems, and this problem's name was once again the Dread Dormammu, because through yet another sort of loophole in the oath he swore about not invading Earth and stuff, these seams, well, he could come through there, they were a part of the stadium, and therefore the stadium could be his foothold into Earth, and he'd figure out the rest later. Now, Wong knew he'd learned a few things from Doctor Strange, he helped train Doctor Strange when he was still in broken-handed short pants, He could probably take this guy, but he was really worried about collateral damage to all of the people who were gathering for the game that was going to be starting soon. So he did manage to convince many of them, but not all of them, to evacuate. There were a few thousand left, whether that was because they didn't want to miss the game if it did start, or they just wanted to see a pretty kick-ass fight. Who knows? But that is why, on May 6th, 1974, Veteran Stadium in Philadelphia had its smallest attendance ever, a mere (laughs) 4,149. And that is the other thing that Wong was up to. Well done. That was fucking delightful, Miles. Thank you. 90% of my prep time for this episode was that. (laughs) Well, Miles, thank you so much for joining us. That was a delight. Miles, if other people would care to listen to your work, how would you suggest they go about that? Because I would definitely recommend that they do so. What would be the best way? Well, if they were more interested in X-Men, they might check out Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, which they could get to at explainthexmen.com and on the various social medias. We've been going for a little over three years now and have covered between the 60s and the very beginning of the 90s, currently on hiatus, but we'll be back soon. Or if they liked Thor and, say, Sal Buscema, who will shortly be drawing what we're covering, they could check out Thor, The Lightning and the Storm, my newer show, which is at thelightningandthestorm.com, also on various social medias. Or, as I would suggest, they should do both, because both of those shows are sincerely fucking wonderful. Ah, well, thank you so much, as is your show, and this has been great. I've actually been hoping to be on your show for, like, a really long time, so I was incredibly excited when you invited me, so thank you. Awesome, I'm really, really glad it worked out. 
Yeah, and you did a great job. Listeners, if you have any questions for me, you can reach me at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're up on Tumblr, we're on Stitcher, we're on iTunes. Leave us reviews, places where reviews can be left. If you'd like to leave us some money instead, you can do that at patreon.com backslash ttwasteland. And, oh hell, we're all over the internets. Just, uh, just look up. <laughs> Look up anything and there they shall find you. <laughs> Look in your hearts. That's where we live now. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can find us if, if, if you want to. Clearly you have at least once and thank you for doing so. You guys are rad. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, thank you, Miles, for joining us. This was a real treat. So says Mr. Hubbard. <laughs> and so swears Dr. Stokes. Dr. Stokes.